Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. This month, I have a wonderful potpourri of interviews from my last two climate-related trips, as well as a teaser about an upcoming forum called Land Use, Climate, and Equity. Let's do that teaser first. Kip Kolsinskas is a soil scientist who worked for more than 30 years at the U.S. Department of Agriculture Natural Resources Conservation Service and now consults for several organizations, including the American Farmland Trust. So for the, uh, the forum on land use, climate, and equity that's being sponsored by the Connecticut Climate Crisis Mobilization, or C3M, as we say, um, we're having uh, five different speakers covering a range of uh, points of view, I guess, related to the issue of, you know, of land use. And uh, so we have you pegged as the agroecologist. I realized that I don't really, I couldn't tell anybody else, like, what is that? Right. So, so yeah. what, what can you say about that to explain it and to, you know, uh, perhaps interest our listeners in, in tuning into the whole, uh, the whole forum to hear you and, and all the other speakers uh, on, on uh, July 25th. Sure. And I, I would say that basically what it does is that it takes kind of those, those principles of um, sustain, an approach towards sustainability that uses ecological principles um, as well as you know, agronomic principles. So not only are you consider you're considering plants, you're considering animals, you're considering the human interaction, you're considering um, principles of ecosystems and ecosystem management um, and an adaptive management kind of standpoint. And you're also including the, the human and social dimension. So that's probably one of those things. So, and again, as we think about how do we, move towards sustainability, which is to me is what it's all about. I mean, I have no desire to get on some small smelly spaceship and travel for, you know, light years to get someplace else. I really want to keep the planet that we have alive. And I would say that the, the discipline of, uh, you know, of agroecology is all about moving towards how do we develop sustainable food systems that are fair and just and also consider other species um, and keeping ecosystems alive. And I think it's uniquely situated now for our challenge of how do we, how do, we do that in a changing climate? So, you know, part of our success as a species over the last, what, 10, 12,000 years has, with agriculture, has been some level of predictability. We know when the rains will come, when the first and last frost dates are, and right now, you, the, the predictability is, is gone or much lessened. So that's gonna be one of our biggest challenges. So I think the principles of agroecology can really help us build resiliency, adapt to climate change, mitigate as well, and do that in a way that changes the food system so that it's more, more just and considers ecosystem principles. Wow, that does sound really interesting and important and very clear. And it's something that I've been reading in the last, just in the last few years, that is probably nothing new to you, but I want to see what you think about how this fits into to the work you do. 
it's the term regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing it everywhere. And basically, right. I think it's about soil health and, you know, really emphasizing, you know, if we're going to be able to grow what we need um, to feed ourselves, that this is the way to make the soil healthy and so on. It, do you do you see that as sort of becoming a like a, it's a buzzword that's becoming more of a big deal for people? I mean, Right. I, I would say, right, you're hearing a lot about regenerative agriculture. You're hearing a lot about soil health. And those are basically um, some of those principles where you're really considering more of the ecology when you're making management decisions so that you're um, not just focused on highest productivity. You have a long-term perspective. You're you're managing your nutrients so that they're not leaching into the groundwater or running off into the stream. You're trying to keep the biota in the soil happy and healthy, that what we call soil food web. And if you have healthy soils and you're managing your organic matter, then it's gonna hold more moisture, that you're gonna have fewer uh, weeds, you're gonna have fewer diseases. And uh, so those are, those are some of the, the principles. So it's it's not just having a short-term um, pro- production perspective, but looking at over the long-term and looking at the interactions and the, I guess, the typically, you know, unintended consequences. So probably one example was in the Midwest, there was such a focus on reducing soil erosion, but not thinking about all of the nutrients that they were using that they ended up having groundwater and surface water problems and why we have, part of the reason why we have hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico is all those nutrients going into subsurface drains and into the Mississippi, into the Gulf. Right. Well, this has been, I think, a great little teaser for our, our, our forum, which I wanna just again remind listeners, it is Sunday. July 25th from 4 to 6 p.m. And Kip is just one of five fabulous speakers that's going to be addressing the issue of uh, land use, climate, and equity. Um, so uh, people can, it's, it's free and open to everyone. And you can find out more information and sign up by going uh, to the Facebook page of the Connecticut Climate Crisis Mobilization. So um, thanks so much for being on the show to do a little sure. about this and um and we'll see you then yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to it because it really is you know it's all about the land use stupid so and, and again i think that that's a, a great tie into the topic and there's so much that we can do as communities and individuals so hope is not lost so looking forward to the the panel and the forum that was kip kolsinskas the agroecologist who will be a panelist on a forum on land use, climate, and equity. That's on Sunday, July 25th from 4 to 6 p.m. You can learn more and register, even if you're not a Facebook user, by going to the Facebook page of the Connecticut Climate Crisis Mobilization, which is sponsoring the event. Let's move on to two women I met while on a walk for our grandchildren and Mother Earth in late June from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Wilmington, Delaware, to call on President Biden to take more action on climate change. For example, he could revoke the cross-border permit for the Line 3 tar sands pipeline across indigenous treaty lands in Minnesota 
just like he did for the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline on his first day in office. Every day on the walk, we learned about fights against gas and oil projects, as well as incinerators, which are wrongly considered a form of clean energy in many states. I interviewed Zuline Mayfield, a lifelong resident of the small, low-income, mostly African-American city of Chester, Pennsylvania. Here's her story. They truck the trash in. So there are about 400 to 500 trucks that go in and out of that facility a day. These are the 18-wheeler trash trucks, um, uh, as well as the trash trucks that we're accustomed to seeing in our neighborhoods, the compactor trucks. So the impact that it has had on our neighborhood is that 38% of our children have asthma now. Um, we have a high infant mortality rate. We have high incidences of cancers. We have various respiratory illnesses and problems um, that the residents are suffering from, as well as everyday ailments such as rashes, uh, eye irritation, throat irritation. And these are assaults every single day that people deal with. You cannot sit outside, you cannot open up your windows because the smells just permeate throughout your household and linger. Um, it, they took a, a neighborhood that was 80 something percent home ownership that is now down to around 41% because nobody wants to live there. You cannot sell the houses. You can't rent the houses. A lot of the houses have foundational damage because of the massive amount of trucks that roll through uh, city streets. So the impact has been severe. And we don't see coexisting with this incinerator. There is no coexisting. This facility is outdated. It's over 30 years old. And we all know any 30-year-old technology is not good. So we are fighting to shut it down and we are asking for everybody's help in this battle. You said it's been operating for 30 years. Just say from what, how wide an area do, do these hundreds of trucks bring in the um, trash? The trash comes from as far as New York, um, Philadelphia, Ohio. Um, trash comes from Puerto Rico. Ocean City, Maryland, New Jersey, a wide range of areas. They mass burn every day, roughly 3,500 tons of trash per day. 30% of it comes from New York. It's sent down here on by train. Then it goes to Delaware and they put it on um, trucks and truck it into Chester. Another roughly 28, 29% comes from the city of Philadelphia. And they send their garbage to the city of Chester too. Another percentage of 26 or 25% actually comes from Delaware County. Um, that's 49 municipalities that border or, or, or on the outside of Chester. Um, incident, and maybe 3% comes from Ocean City, Maryland. Um, they have seen that or said that um, incineration is the new recycling. They won't recycle the old way anymore. Does it produce energy and who gets that? Do you get any of that? that? As a byproduct of what they do. 
Um, if, if they were in the energy business, it would be the most wasteful way of creating energy. They produce about 90 megawatts. That energy is not coming to Chester. Uh, it's sold over to New Jersey and it goes into their grid system. We have the right, we have an absolute right to breathe clean air, have clean water and clean lands in the state of Pennsylvania. That is part of our, our, our constitution for the state. And any impediment to that is, is a challenge and, and a threat to our survival as human beings. Basically, you want, you're trying to build support for closing it. Are you going through, like, it, would, would it be legislation? It, it, any means necessary. This is a political fight. It is a scientific fight. It is a health fight. It's a moral battle. They know the pollutants such as cadmium, lead, arsenic, uh, uh, particulate matter. They know what's coming out of that facility and they don't care. The state, the regulatory uh, 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 authorities, the EPA, the, the Department of Environmental Pollution, um, uh, the local and county governments, the, the state governments, the facilities, and we know too, as residents. Are you going through like it would would it be legislation or would you just have to get the get if we had a magic bullet for this, we'd have used it. There is no magic bullet. It's gonna take all of us. It's, it's got we have one source of air. Nobody has their own clean pipeline of air, nowhere. So right. we're building bridges, we're collaborating, we're trying to build political power uh, because we are certainly determined to make sure that this, this life-taking industry is no longer operating. Uh, we're not sacrificial lambs. We are people. You know, they have an Endangered Species Act. I think that this country absolutely has to come up with an Endangered Humans Act for communities like Chester, that somebody has designated these people will be sacrificed for the good and the comfort of everybody else. And if we're concerned about what we're, the legacy we're leaving our children and grandchildren, these are the battles that must be won because they impact us all. That was Zuline Mayfield, chairperson of the group fighting the Covanta incinerator. More info is at chesterresidents.org. The next day, we visited a group fighting a liquefied natural gas, or LNG, export terminal just a few miles from Chester, and also just a few miles from Philadelphia. Tracy Carluccio is deputy director of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. Earlier this year, the Delaware River Basin Compact, consisting of the governors of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, and a federal representative, banned fracking in the basin, but not other fracking-related developments. Here's Tracy. The Delaware River, even though it has a, a ban on fracking, does not have a ban on fracking-related or gas and oil infrastructure. And one of the threats to the Delaware River watershed today is the proposal to build a liquefied natural gas, that's LNG, export terminal on the Delaware River in Gibbstown, New Jersey. Now, this, this project sounds like, well, it's just a terminal. Well, it's at a deep water port. Um, and there is already a port there, but they would expand what is there um, to pretty much triple the activity 
and add two more ship berths and another dock that will require dredging of the river, which disturbs the area where endangered and, and threatened species live, including the federally endangered Atlantic sturgeon and the short-nosed sturgeon. Um, so species rely on it as well as people for good water quality. And there's none other like this in the United States. But this is a new type of facility that would build a liquefied natural gas plant out in the Marcellus Shale Fields in, in north-central Pennsylvania that's up on the Susquehanna River, an absolutely gorgeous section of the upper uh, parts of the Delaware of the uh, Susquehanna River. They would build this liquefied natural gas plant there that would require new fracked wells to be in, installed and gas to be extracted, basically inducing fracking, a whole new wave of fracking to the region up there in order to supply a, what they call a feedstock, which is the gas that would go to this liquefied natural gas facility nestled right in a little uh, community there that would be terribly at risk because the liquefaction of natural gas emits very dangerous pollutants to the air. But that plant up there would produce the gas in a liquefied form, it's basically liquid methane, and put it into rail cars and or tank trucks and carry it about 200 miles over land through hundreds of communities, exposing about 1.2 million people along the route to the danger of an LNG release. And some of these communities, such as Scranton and Allentown and Philadelphia, Camden, are communities where the train tracks go really literally within feet of people's homes, um, right past hospitals. Um, there are schools dotted all along this transportation route. Liquefied natural gas by rail has never been moved in the United States by tank car uh, on rail because it was considered to be too dangerous. And the Trump administration lifted that ban and gave a special permit to New Fortress Energy, which is the company that owns both the Wyalusing plant and then also the Gibbstown facility and this, the uh, subsidiary that got the permit to move the gas, uh, the liquefied natural gas by rail. Um, this company, New Fortress Energy, got a special permit from the Trump administration to allow this highly exp um, uh, flammable, hazardous material that is potentially explosive should it be released from the tank car over land through all these communities. And then when it gets to the terminal at Gibbstown, um, the backyards of Gibbstown adjoin the property, property li literally. They adjoin the property where the terminal is. And should there be an accident at that terminal because they're 24-7 going to be transloading liquefied natural gas onto ships from these rail cars and or by truck, um, then that explosion could move as far as Philadelphia. It could move as far as Chester. It could destroy the entire region. And that's because liquefied natural gas is reduced down 600 times when it's refrigerated down to 260 degrees minus Fahrenheit. And at that uh, compressed state in these tank cars, if it is released, it expands instantly 600 times. So just imagine if there's even a small spark, uh, the liquefied natural gas will explode immediately. So we're really talking potentially about catastrophe here. So people with low incomes and people of color will once again be subjected 
um, to greater danger than anybody else because they live the closest to these train tracks and also to the truck routes. It would go over public highways. There has not been any environmental impact analysis um, that has been done of the Gibbstown terminal itself, and there is no environmental impact statement done of the transport. All the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration did was an environmental assessment and felt it wasn't a great enough threat in order to do a comprehensive analysis. So um, there's this huge public outcry about this project. And when I say project, I mean all the way from Pennsylvania down to New Jersey and even overseas. Um, we are working with our um, counterparts in Ireland and also in Puerto Rico to oppose the project. They don't want LNG to be imported there. They're against it for environmental reasons, but also because of the huge impacts of the greenhouse gas emissions of methane on climate. Uh, and the climate crisis will be made worse should this project get built. But people are fighting back in, in many different ways. Uh, first of all, Delaware Riverkeeper Network is appealing all the major permits for this project. So we're in court um, with the Army Corps of Engineers, with New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, and with the Delaware River Basin Commission who gave a permit for the terminal to be built. So all of these agencies have approved the terminal, and we're fighting them. So that's ongoing. We hope to get an injunction to keep the project from starting. Right now, the project cannot be constructed. It's on hold, and that's because the terminal is in that area where I mentioned the endangered species Atlantic sturgeon live. And because of that, there is a prohibition on working in the water between March 15th and September 15th. So we're trying desperately before September 15th to get an injunction to stop the project from beginning construction. But our goal is to influence President Biden not to allow this permit to continue. We want it rescinded. The industry's effort to try to develop a new market for liquefied natural gas is seen by many as a climate disaster. Greenhouse gas emissions of methane are 86 times more powerful than carbon on, t on a 20-year time scale. And that's the time scale when scientists are telling us we have to drastically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. That was Tracy Carluccio of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. You can learn more at their website, DelawareRiverkeeper.org. Finally, I'm sharing a little of the interview I did with Tara Hauska, an indigenous leader and founder of one of the camps in northern Minnesota opposing the Line 3 pipeline. I was arrested there in early May with a group of elders from Connecticut and Massachusetts, as well as a 40-something and four young activists. Uh, my name is Tara Hauska. I'm Bearkland from Kuchting First Nation. This space that we're sitting in, Nimewug, uh, the, the sturgeon that carries us all on their back, was formed back in uh, 2018. The, the system is so deeply skewed against the people uh, when it comes to protecting our interests. In this case, the interests in our, our land and water, you know, and our interest in not violating the tr treaty rights of indigenous people. And so um, having learned the lessons of land defense in Standing Rock, I knew that this space would be needed and I knew that building a community would be needed because it takes time to prepare people. But I, w I did my best to pull together the networks of people that I knew and the 
people I knew locally to try to start building this community that we're in um, with the intention of it being indigenous women-led and two-spirit-led um, and youth-led. You know, it's young people that are literally fighting for their futures. And that's what this space is. The removal of Anishinaabe that were down here and the forced uh, closure into reservations was actually through cutting down the forests and killing all the sturgeon and, uh, you know, cutting off the food sources, cutting off the, the wilderness from the people. So when this space was opened by matriarchs, the first, uh, the first moments that we were here, we prayed and we sang together and shared space, and it was really powerful. And then I was like, okay, well, it feels like this is starting to come together in a little bit different way. Some other really amazing land defenders have started to arrive, and they have networks, and now we're building out this, like, community, and now this, uh kind of like the, the word has gone out in a lot of different resistance circles about this space and what we're trying to create here, which is a inclusive, safe space for healing our connections to earth and to each other and also throwing down and stopping a pipeline together. And it seemed like building a space where leadership development, in addition to uh, sovereign foods and spiritual healing and growth was needed. It seems like legal options would be for the Army Corps of Engineers to basically, I don't know if it's withdraw, the, re, reverse the, the permit, or say they needed a new permit, they might, that maybe the company would have to redo it or something. And also that Biden could, President Biden could cancel the cross-border permit, um, which from one of the interviews I did, uh, Andrews was saying they didn't even need because they got it when they built the first pipeline. And this is only a replacement, which, of course, it isn't through the entire state of Minnesota. So yeah. where, do, where do you think things stand? And wh what do you think is like the point um, of movement in terms of, you know, is, is it legal advocacy? Is it direct action? Is it, you know, writing to decision makers? Is it, you know, all of the above where, you know, the next step would take the struggle. Yeah, we are at the point now where uh, the line was unanimously approved in 2018. Uh, the conditions were set on the pipeline's construction and full-on construction began at the end of November um, of last year in 2020. We're in so much water. There's so much water up here. It's incredible. There have been over 250 people arrested at this point, including myself. Um, there have been multiple lawsuits brought against uh, the state for approving like the Enbridge Line 3 project against the feds for like the Army Corps of Engineers, right? Like you were talking about. Uh, the state is actually suing itself. So Minnesota's Department of Commerce is suing Minnesota's Public Utility Commission for failing to, or for approving a certificate of need that didn't adequately prove its need. Um, those lawsuits are still working their way through they're also joined by the White Earth, White Earth Nation, the Red Lake Nation, and Malax Band of Ojibwe. Uh, so you got three different Ojibwe nations that are suing on this project uh, against its approval. Enbridge keeps talking about how much it respects tribal nations, yet three of them are suing them. That's where all the legal sits. The direct action pieces, to me, are what propel and push 
the rest and help you get that meeting at the White House. We've had several different meetings, transition meetings, Biden transition team meetings with White House. We've had meetings with the actual, with the White House that's currently sitting with um, Department of the Interior, with uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, with uh, CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, where I used to clerk back when I was in law school. We wouldn't be getting those meetings if it weren't for all these people being arrested. There's no way. We would be getting national attention if there weren't people that were physically chaining themselves to the machines and climbing into the pipes. When we see that kind of heart and that kind of selflessness, I think as people it does something to you to see a young person especially that's literally fighting for their futures in the real, in real time. So the public pressure campaign has been very powerful. That was Tara Hauska, a leader of the indigenous opposition to the Line 3 tar sands pipeline coming from Alberta, Canada, also on indigenous lands. For more information, visit the GNU Collective on Facebook. That's G-I-N-I-W Collective. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m., here on WPKN 89.5 FM or at WPKN.org for more environmental news you can use.